0: I'm Bijan Karimi, welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise and what it's like to be part of the master's program. Resilience is a ubiquitous term used to describe personal health, overcoming financial setbacks, computer networks, business processes, manufacturing supply chains, and a myriad of other uses. Homeland Security is no exception. Leaders often implore individuals, teams, and communities to bounce back from the latest incident as if a rallying cry for unity and a return to normalcy. The frequency and breadth of the term's use has effectively muddied its meaning, requiring the person hearing or reading it to divine the intended definition by context of the situation. So what does resilience actually mean? How is it measured? And how does one make it happen? Jill Raycroft is the training, exercise, and credentialing manager for the city and county of San Francisco's Department of Emergency Management and has been in emergency management for over 17 years, though for the last several years, she's been in leadership roles in the city's COVID-19 Emergency Operations Center. She started with San Francisco exploring the logistical management of emergency supply caches and lifeline interdependencies before transitioning into large-scale exercise development between local, state, federal, military, and private sector partners, exploring how agencies will coordinate during catastrophic events. Jill came to NPS to explore the connection between emergency management and homeland security, learn from the experiences of her peers, and develop her critical thinking and writing skills. The concept of resiliency is an underlying theme to Jill's work so it's not surprising that she decided to tackle this subject during her thesis research. She also experienced her own need for resilience, as we all did, when addressing the seemingly endless challenges that COVID-19 sent our way. There are a lot of voices talking about resilience. Why is it important to have a single or a common understanding of what resilience is?
1: I think going into writing my thesis, which is a trap, I thought, oh, I know that we need to find one definition. So we're all on the same page. But through my research, I learned that it's actually okay that we have a lot of definitions of resilience. And the reason or the impetus for writing about resilience is that it's a word that I'd heard so much in the emergency management community and beyond. I was driving around San Francisco a couple of months ago, and the San Francisco Giants, our baseball team, Around the baseball stadium, there's all these posters that say resilient on them. And I am not a sports fan and I had no idea what that meant. Are they resilient because they're still playing and we've had this huge pandemic? Are they resilient because maybe they'll go to the World Series? I just didn't know what that meant. And in the frame of emergency management, resilience is thrown around. And I think it's thrown around in a way where it is just so diluted. Hashtag resilience is something that you see a lot after disasters, but I was really interested, what does that look like? How do you operationalize resilience? What is resilience and what is not resilience? So through my research, I looked at the academic literature, and there are a lot of definitions of resilience It actually comes out of the field of psychology. And then in the 1970s, um, the field of ecology really nailed down a definition of resilience, which means returning to homeostasis or returning to what was before. And this is good. This is a good start. But you know, after a disaster, do we really want to go back? Do we want to, quote unquote, bounce back to what we were? Or do we want to bounce forward or move forward to something better? And better is such a subjective way of looking. Better for whom? Who's in charge of making this, quote unquote, better? The research shows that actually resilience is a term I think, is best seen as a boundary object. A boundary object is a space where multiple disciplines can come together with kind of a common set of ideas, but from different places. So the disciplines that look at resilience, there's a ton, but some of them are ecology, sociology, the built environment studies, so architecture, design, construction, Psychology looks at resilience and and coming together in a in a common space, but with different ideas about what it is, is what the research showed.
0: Based on your research, what is the definition you're putting forward?
1: The definition that I have found that I like the best comes out of the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, and I believe it was written in around 2012. And their definition of resilience is quote the ability of a system, community, or society exposed to hazards to resist, absorb, accommodate, adapt to, transform, and recover from the effects of a hazard in a timely and efficient manner, including through the preservation and restoration of its essential basic structures and functions through risk management. And that's a mouthful, but I think some of the words that really speak to me in this definition is ability of a system. So if you look at a community, a society, a city, a town, a rural area, there, is, there are systems in place that, that make these communities, these societies work. And the system as a whole needs to resist, absorb, accommodate, adapt to, transform, and recover from the effects of a hazard. And I like that because it's not just about one piece of a larger system, it's the whole system, because there are so many interdependencies in our communities, and that it's done in a timely and efficient manner. So we've seen recovery to some disasters globally, some take very little time and others take years and years. So how do we get our societies, our communities back up and running? and the restoration of basic structures. So this could be our lifelines, this could be our governance or government structures, other structures that help our communities work. And then risk management is a huge one, and I studied that a lot in my thesis. Knowing our risks going in and learning how to manage them before the disaster is key.
0: So there are different perspectives on what the definition is. You put yours forward, With any definition, there's some type of indicator. You were just talking about some ways to kind of evaluate resilience. Are those the ones that you take a look at in your thesis?
1: I looked at a lot of ways to define resilience and then other words that help us define resilience because resilience is such a big, loaded term and word. Words like adaptation, sustainability, risk, recovery. Vulnerability, which is sometimes seen as the opposite of resilience, those helped. And then indicators. So, an indicator is what helps us actually measure our resilience through different frameworks. I found four indicators that really got a lot of light shown on them in the literature. And those four are social resilience, which is the most studied and I'd say least understood of the four indicators physical resilience which looks at the built environment it also provides space for social resilience to thrive governance of resilience so how do we actually make resilience work at the government level and governance you know as we know does not mean just government but how do we work with our communities the private sector non-governmental organizations faith-based organizations and others to ensure that we're actually doing the resilience work and there's accountability. And then the fourth one is the economic resilience. How are our communities able to move through disasters and get to the other side and not be economically broken?
0: From those four, are they equally important, one more than the others?
1: So the literature definitely focuses on that social resilience piece, which could also be called social capital, a term that was coined by Robert Putnam, I think in the 90s, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which looked at how, as a society, we're really going inside more and we're not out in our communities. And you could say, you know, looking at social media, we're, we're able to connect more on the internet, but are we connecting, is that connection as, as meaningful or as close or is as tight-knit as when we connect in person? So social resilience is studied the most. Without social resilience, just really how a community works together as a network. Without that, I think there's an emotional piece. So if in a seismic event, in an earthquake, all the homes fall down and people survive are people going to go back and build their house again if their neighbors aren't going back? But I would argue that the governance of all of these resilience indicators is, is almost more important. If we have these three indicators of social, physical and economic resilience, but we don't have a way to actually, quote unquote, do them or know what they look like or lead them. Or fund them through a governance structure, or look at how they're connected or they're not connected. I think that that can be harder for really operationalizing resilience.
0: Have you seen any examples of these indicators in use, kind of the operationalization, and what do they show?
1: So, in my thesis, I defined, I looked at definitions of resilience in the academic literature, I looked at terms that are related to resilience. And then I did four case studies on cities that had done a resilience strategy through the Rockefeller Foundations. So I looked at Vancouver, Canada, Kyoto, Japan, Los Angeles, California, and Wellington, New Zealand. And the strategies themselves lay out the path forward for how to do resilience. But we, I did not study if they actually did what was in the strategies. But some of the interesting Items that I picked out from the strategies, for instance, Vancouver, Canada looked at personal economic resilience. After a disaster, it's really important that individuals have that economic resilience. It also presented an equity framework. So how do we move beyond disaster situations equitably so that folks that might be more marginalized in society are brought to the table and are understood and listened to so that we're not just planning for communities, but we're planning with them. Kyoto, Japan, which out of the four cities studied, has just had a disproportionate amount of disasters in comparison, many, many more. So they've had a lot of practice in preparedness and response, but I thought it was interesting. They looked at mental health as something that needed some a resilience spotlight on, as well as food security. And these are kind of physical resilience, personal resilience, social resilience aspects, but this is not heavily studied in the academic literature. Los Angeles looked at social equity like Vancouver had, personal resilience like Vancouver had, but really looked at homelessness, which is a big issue in a lot of our cities in the United States and globally, looked at formerly incarcerated folks. How do we ensure that there is resilience for them? And a big thing that Los Angeles was pushing was free Wi-Fi. So if we want to get folks beyond the disaster to a better place, access to the internet is key. And it's key on a blue sky day as well. And finally, Wellington, New Zealand. So their their resilience strategy was interesting. They did it as storytelling and they followed a family to see how they were in their day-to-day lives and then following a disaster. Wellington's was really, really focused on buy-in from diverse groups. So it wasn't just the government, again, planning for communities, but Instead planning with, Uh, they focused on electric vehicles, which is a big one, big one in California right now, and also enhancing their public transportation. Some of these, not all, you can actually look at and you can see if public transportation is improved, you can see that in more efficient transportation, possibly more buses, more trains, etc., Electric vehicles, you can see that more electric vehicles on the road, more places to charge them. So I really wanted to see not just this theory of bouncing back or bouncing forward or returning to homeostasis. I wanted to just really unpack what does that actually look like? Because if we don't, you know, defining a term is the first part of this, but if we don't actually know what it is when we see it, then how are we going to understand how to measure it and improve it?
0: You mentioned your four examples, the case studies you mm-hmm. looked at. The Rockefeller Foundation—they mm-hmm. had thirty-two different cities globally that they were considering. Mm-hmm. Are there any examples of locations or organizations that are doing resilience right?
1: Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting question because you know, right again is subjective. Right for whom? right? For what? But I'd say, you know, as an overarching organization that is helping to shepherd this work along, the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction has helped globally helped us adopt the Sendai Framework for Action, which has come out of Japan. And I'd say that there are numerous examples of communities that have really looked at creative ways, and I've named some with the four cities that I studied to kind of, quote unquote, operationalize resilience rights. But you know, the reason I wanted to write this thesis, Bijan, is because I didn't know what resilience was. And working for an organization that does resilience work, I, I kind of could see it in preparedness and going into communities, but I wanted better examples. So I would say that the framework, the Sendai framework helps lay out that clearer path forward for how to do or operationalize resilience. Um, With the cities I studied, I think they all had different ways of interpreting what resilience was for them. They did a lot of interviews with stakeholders to understand what folks actually needed to be resilient as individuals and as communities, um, as organizations as well. I work for the city and county of San Francisco, and we have a chief resilience officer, Brian Strong, who's really great. And his focus is on the built environment. And I think that's really important in a densely populated urban environment with a lot of tall buildings. Like how do we ensure that our community is resilient to a seismic event? So I'd say we're doing a great job on the seismic stuff. The cities I studied, a lot of them did a great job of looking at individual resilience. Um, How do we build out our physical spaces so that they provide a safe space following a disaster to build and to enhance our social resilience. But I don't, um, I'd say the UN's work with the Sendai is the best example right now.
0: The title of your research is Realizing Resilience. What does it mean to do that and apply the concepts that you talk about in your research, the Sendai framework and, and others?
1: So realizing resilience is operationalizing resilience, taking this theory into practice, and looking at how academics study it, practitioners, quote-unquote, do it. And I think realizing resilience is providing the funding, the physical space, and the support so that communities can come together and work together prior to disasters and to, to look at how, as a group, we can get to the other side. I mean, there are countless examples in the United States you know, in the last 20 years, we've had more disasters that have cost more money than we had in the 100 years before. So we have a lot of practice in getting ready for these disasters and going through them and recovering, but actually looking at ways to do that collectively, look at best practices on that or good practices. So some of this, I'd say that's you know, taking this conceptual idea of resilience into a real world application of that. You know, we have a return on investment. That's a big thing that we look at in the economic sphere. What about a social mitigation return on investment? How do we quantify looking at our social systems and mitigating against the future of any disasters we might face? How do we share data transparently as governments, as the private sector, Uh, With each other, with our communities that we serve, how do we plan with communities and not for them? That was a big one that I saw, you know, having these frameworks and these roadmaps and these resilient strategies is the first part, but how do we actually work with our communities to operationalize them? Another one that was mentioned a lot about operationalizing resilience is through our lifelines councils, where we gather our lifeline providers, so transportation, telecommunication, water, power, electricity, et cetera, into a room, into a space so that we can look at interdependencies and also plan collectively, because we know that a lot of these systems rely on other systems. A big one, too, is that as we know, disasters don't they don't have geographic boundaries that we have made. So how do we work regionally? How do we work across states? How do we actually build relationships with folks that maybe we don't work with every day? Just looking at that, I think that's a really good way to work with your neighbors to collectively work together before, during, and after a disaster. Another one of resilient, realizing resilience is As government agencies, we have a lot of programs right now that do resilience work, but not under the resilience moniker. So I don't think resilience programs, maybe at a city level, need to just completely be novel and start from scratch. I think co-opting some of the work that's already done and bringing into one space can help into a resilience space. And you can also, again, look for interdependencies when you do that. Uh, Another big one is the need to, for folks to have insurance, private insurance, and for companies and governments to have insurance, the insurance rate is, is not what it should be in states like California. Uh, earthquake insurance is still not commonplace, although that is a big risk and hazard for folks that live in California. So how do we incentivize people to be insured? and is that economically is that by another way but you know these are these are kind of little little ways that we can look at resilience as this big theory and take off bite sized pieces of it
0: in your acknowledgement section you talk about your own need for resilience you d- you did your research during covid how did that shape the approach you took
1: i think what covid taught me about personal resilience is that the the way that i think a lot of us got through the, the really dark times of our isolation time apart from people was connecting with them online and having that community. And that's that social resilience piece. So although I didn't see a lot of my close friends for over a year, I definitely connected with them. And that really helped me I also did go into work because our emergency operations center was activated, obviously, that whole time. So I was able to connect in person with folks, obviously, distanced and masked, but that helped as well. I think coming out of this, you know, writing a thesis at MPS is no easy task, but you do it because you have a community of folks that are rallying around you to get it done, your family, your friends, your coworkers, And I think that really just taught me that work like this, writing a thesis, going through a pandemic, any challenge in our life we adapt and we overcome it with help from others.
0: What would you say to a prospective applicant?
1: Be ready to to look at things differently. Like I said in the beginning, the one of the reasons I applied to the program in the first place was to grow my critical thinking skill set, and I thought it was just going to be around homeland security and by extension emergency management, but it became a lot larger. You'll be in an environment with folks that might do similar jobs that you do, but they live in different parts of the country and some of our challenges are pretty different. So I think just really taking that active listening skill set and really participating in the conversation, really you're going to learn a lot from your peers. So listen to them, but also engage in the discourse and the dialogue. That's where you're going to grow.
0: As a follow-up to this research, Jill also developed a seven-part self-study course covering our discussion topics in greater detail. It's one of 30 courses offered by CHDS that can be found at chds.us forward slash self-study. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Jill's thesis, Realizing Resilience, a study of definition, indicators, and operationalization. To read her research, browse to the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Realizing Resilience. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the Masters, Executive Leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.